Welcome to the Wild and Free podcast, episode 47. I'm Ainsley Arment, and this week we'll join our friend Rochelle Babarina for a fascinating conversation about Charlotte Mason and math. Plus today, we're launching an exciting campaign for the Wild and Free Farm Village that's loaded with all sorts of amazing perks. So grab a cup of coffee and join us on the front porch. Let's get started. In just a few minutes, we're going to hear about two topics that you don't often hear about together, Charlotte Mason and math. Our friend Rochelle Babarina is the author of the Charlotte Mason Elementary Arithmetic series, and she's got some wonderful insights to share with us. So when I first started reading Charlotte Mason's volumes and I had my pencil out and she was using words like beauty and truth and awe, and those weren't the words that I used to describe math. So I really wanted to dig into it and find out just what that was, you know, and she calls education is is an atmosphere, a discipline, and a life, it doesn't mean that math is a missing piece of the puzzle that just sets on top of everything else, but it can actually be an instrument for living teaching just the same way that history is or, you know, sitting with a pot of tea and your poetry or your composer study. And you can have that same relationship with your child and your child can have a beautiful relationship with numbers as well. And this extends all the way through high school and into life. But first, we've got an exciting announcement about the Wild and Free Farm Village. Last year, the Wild and Free community came together to purchase a 177-acre retreat center in Headwaters, Virginia to create the Wild and Free Farm Village. The property comes with a main lodge, a ropes course, a few rustic cabins, and acres of hiking trails. However, there is still one parcel of land that we need to make our vision complete, the Staff House. By purchasing the Staff House, we'll be able to accomplish four important things. First, increase the size of the farm village and preserve our privacy. Second, get access to thousands of acres in the adjoining national forest. Third, provide a place for guests to stay overnight, even before the lodge is ready. And fourth, house our own staff who will be taking care of the property. The seller has graciously offered us the opportunity to purchase the staff house at a discounted price under terms that we couldn't get anywhere else any other time. We've already raised $17,000 toward this project and all we need is the remaining $33,000 to complete the vision for the campus of the farm village. The only catch is we have to raise the money by the end of July or else the staff house will be put back on the market for someone else to buy and we could lose our chance for good. To raise the remaining $33,000 by July 31st, we put together an Indiegogo campaign that offers a number of exclusive perks in exchange for your generous contribution. Here are just a few of them. For $10, you can get an exclusive Farm Village podcast from my husband, Ben and me, plus a Farm Village patch in the mail. For $35, you'll receive a signed copy of my new book, The Call of the Wild and Free, along with a few surprise goodies in the package. For $200, you'll get a package of Wild and Free Farm Village gear, 
including a handcrafted mug, sweatshirt, and beanie. We also have higher-level perks, such as a VIP ticket to the sold-out Wild and Free Conference in Franklin, Tennessee this September, an invitation to the private donor dinner at the Farm Village, all of the past Wild and Free content bundles we've ever created, and so much more. There are so many perks you can get by contributing to the campaign by July 31st, but don't wait too long. Some of the perks are limited, and the best ones will go fast. To contribute to this campaign and get the goodies, visit bewildandfree.org slash farmvillage. From Jane Austen to geometry, Rochelle Barberina is passionate about sharing how simple methods rest on profound principles throughout Charlotte Mason's philosophy of education. She shares life with her husband and two sons in the Berkshires of Western Massachusetts, where they run a photo and art preservation studio. As the author of the Charlotte Mason Elementary Arithmetic Series and Brush Drawing, a basic course, Rochelle also manages the math resources page for Charlotte Mason Poetry. She recently sat down with Jennifer Pepito to talk about Charlotte Mason and math. Let's listen in. So I went to my first Charlotte Mason co-op 20 some years ago. I I had maybe a four-year-old was my, my 25-year-old now was maybe four then. Mm -hmm. So I've been using Charlotte Mason in some form for over 20 years, but math in the Charlotte Mason homeschool mystifies me a little bit. You know, I've read through the books. I've tried to understand what it is we're actually supposed to do. And then I just throw up my hands and buy a curriculum that seems like a good fit. So tell me a little bit about what Charlotte Mason math looks like. Well, Charlotte Mason called her arithmetic program, she called it numbers because she thought that that was really a better word than arithmetic because arithmetic gives the idea that it's really just learning to add and subtract. And we hear a lot today even about this term number sense in the education world. Well, Number sense usually means, you know, the ability to manipulate numbers. But what Charlotte Mason wanted was for children to get a vision of its innate power and beauty, you know, that extends beyond the current problem that they're working. So these are kind of like a lot bigger ideas for Charlotte Mason than, you know, just maybe to use math to solve problems or to use it to balance your checkbook. She really wanted a child's relationships with numbers to be like a great entrance into a realm of beauty and wonder for the child to enjoy and delight in. It was even called a fairyland, which is, uh, I think it's just really great because we don't think so much about math in that way, but Charlotte Mason did. I love that because I think that I don't know if this is true across the board, but a lot of the homeschool friends that I have, we were stronger in history and language, and math was not necessarily our strong suit. And so then it's easy to bring that same attitude of it being kind of drudgery or, you Mm -hmm. know, I've, I've grown to love it more as I've been homeschooling, but I definitely don't think of math as a fairyland. Right. I don't think a lot of people do. And so when I first started reading Charlotte Mason's volumes and I had my, you know, my pencil out and she was using words like beauty and truth and awe, and those weren't the words that I used to describe math or my own math experience. 
as well. So I really wanted to dig into it and find out just what that was, you know, and she calls education is, is an atmosphere, a discipline and a life. It doesn't mean that math is a missing piece of the puzzle or some uh, piece of the puzzle that just sets on top of everything else, but it can actually be an instrument for living, teaching, just the same way that history is, or, you know, sitting with a pot of tea and your poetry or your composer study. And you can, the, you can have that same relationship with your child and your child can have a beautiful relationship with numbers as well. And this extends all the way through high school and into life. So tell me a little bit about how a typical math lesson in the early years would go. A lot of wild and free homeschool moms have children, you know, in the first three grades of school. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that with Common Core and things like that, math teaching is getting more and more intense in the early years. And some of the research that I've read suggests that children aren't even ready for a lot of abstract math teaching until they're older than 10. So how does Charlotte Mason math approach the early years? Yeah, so, you know, that type of research is right on even with what Charlotte Mason knew 100 years ago. And that is, if your listeners know, about or have experienced a Charlotte Mason reading lesson in the beginning when you're teaching a child to read and they are recognizing these letters are words and they are actual ideas. So, you know, when they learn to spell cat, it's an exciting thing because they know what a cat is. And in this way, numbers are something that they're going to kind of name as as things as well. So we would start out with some number cards, just like you might have loose letters, and you would ask a child to point out, say, two of everything in the room, two ears, two eyes, you know, two pencils, two books. And so they're numbering things. It's not just something that's found in a box with um you know, with certain math manipulatives, but numbers belong to everything. And just like in a a Charlotte Mason, we begin with oral narration and not written narration. Charlotte Mason early arithmetic lessons are also mainly oral because a, a child physically, you know, they don't have the dexterity maybe to do a lot of reading and writing. And we don't want the kind of that labor intensive act of writing to overshadow the ideas of the math lessons. So we're giving a lot of oral work to a child. And and it's kind of funny, writing is actually considered a treat in the Charlotte Mason math lesson. So when the when the child's, you know, working especially well and is especially bright and happy that day, then the the numbers notebook or the math notebook can come out and you can do some writing with your child. These are like threads that run through all of Charlotte Mason's subjects. So habits of neatness, just um, like when you're teaching your child to write and they're able, you want them to write as neatly and straight as as is in their power to do so. So, so a perfect letter for them might be three or four letter, or letters or numbers that they're writing, and that's better than rows and rows of kind of sloppy work. So that's another area. So we're giving a lot of interesting oral work that can give them ideas, capture their imagination. And this work also instills a habit of attention. Just to recap, so a lot of the early years math teaching is just done orally. They're not expected to do computation on a page until approximately what 
age or grade. Okay, so it would work. It would be according to the child, and it is. It follows that progression of their oral narration moving into some written narration and to more written narration, and as well as you know when you're teaching your child handwriting, they they're still working on that. So you are teaching a child notation and numeration in their math lessons, but it will progress according to the child and their ability to write. So, you know, I I love to write as a child. And, and so I think in the Charlotte Mason math lesson, I would have probably already been writing a number of sums, perhaps in first grade or second grade. But I have boys and they took a little bit longer for them to get comfortable with that. So me, we might only do maybe one or two written sums per lesson. Okay, that's really helpful because I think that a lot of times we get bogged down, you know, we're trying to teach a math concept to a child and asking them to, you know, write down the, for instance, write down a sum, compute Mm -hmm. and write some more. And so for a child who's shaky on their motor skills and also shaky on their math skills, this can be too much. And so I love I love how Charlotte Mason brings in a lot of oral math or in, and in a sense then a lot of mental math. Yes, uh, mental math was really a big part of her of her math lessons and mental math continued um, all the way through elementary arithmetic. So while in first grade is this kind of exploration of numbers and investigation and making friends with numbers, then beginning in second grade is when a child is learning their math facts. And But during all of these lessons, we try for, for five minutes per lesson to have mental math, which is working without the manipulatives even. And so we might be giving a little bit easier sums because it's mental, but they're, they're interesting. They're engaging. It could be something like, um, you know, two kittens are playing with a ball of yarn. How many tails between them? And so it's something that the child has to think about what's important in this. And then you can add in some more. And it's a little more interesting than just saying, you know, one plus one, or, you know, how many ears between them. And so that engages their imagination, while at the same time, it's keeping their attention. And, you know, um, with young children, we have short lessons um, in the early years with Charlotte Mason. And so because they have to spend so much focused attention during these lessons, and especially with math, we're going to have a a lesson that uses a different part of the brain or body beforehand or or afterward, but we're going to help build their level of attention. So maybe a six-year-old can only sit and really attend for five minutes of a math lesson, and then we're going to build up until we we get to 20 minutes. And then even in high school, we only have 30-minute math lessons of very concentrated attention, which is you know much better than you know, a two-hour dawdling over worksheets. Which I, I, and I know that so many of us have dealt with that dawdling over worksheets where you're just so frustrated, but you feel like they have to finish the page. And I love that, you know, Charlotte Mason math is sensitive to the attention span because there, there does come a point where we just cannot think anymore. Mm-hmm. I know even for myself as an adult, if I want to write something, I better do it in the morning because by evening, my brain just, what would take me half the time in the morning will take me twice as long in the evening. So, so, so basically in some ways, Charlotte Mason math just increases the time uh, that you spend on it increases as the years go on, but it's still never the hours that 
that some children are spending in high school on math. Right. And that might be hard for people to, you know, to, to adjust to, but what we found is that because it is uh, concentrated attention that a child or even an older student is given, that they're able to progress actually more quickly than if they were, you know, laboring and looking out the window and, you know, for an hour, an hour and 45 minutes. Another thing about Charlotte Mason math is, you know, we don't, we don't give, we don't give busy work and we also don't give uh, long sums, you know, that are just going to take the entire math lesson to work through one, um, but but we're going to be giving maybe a little bit shorter. They do, of course, they're challenging. I, I wanted to ask you too, if there's any role that art plays in math. And I love how you talk about there's a focus on doing less work and doing it neatly. And so in some ways, even math becomes art or it becomes mm-hmm. a work towards beauty. But you're an accomplished brush drawing artist. You're, I think that you're an accomplished painter. And so I'd love to know, does art have any place in math? I've, I've seen how Waldorf will, you know, they'll draw mm-hmm. a flower and they'll write the multiplication facts in each of the petals okay. as a way of kind of drawing art. And are there other disciplines that come into math in a Charlotte Mason homeschool? Okay. Well, other than the kind of, there's some organic overlapping, of course, especially with, uh, with math and with music, but there isn't that overlap as you see in Waldorf, because what did it, Charlotte Mason felt that mathematics was a living language, just like music was, and that it's spoke for itself. So the beauty is actually in the numbers. And of course, as we go on, we're going to, we'll notice things. um, We'll notice things like the golden rectangle, um, things like this. And, and we have ideas that can capture a child's imagination that way. But we don't teach math through living books or through art or things like that. It happens organically, but it's not an actual part of the math lesson. And then speaking of living books, I think that a lot of us get confused with Charlotte Mason and we think that living books are the books that Charlotte Mason actually read. Mm-hmm. How do you decide what of modern books are living books? What's your criteria? So are we talking about math or in general? I'm sorry. We're, we're, no, we're switching gears, we're switching <laughs> okay. gears to books. We, okay. I'd love to just hear, we only have a few minutes left and I'd love oh. to hear your thoughts on choosing living books. All right. So what would the criteria be in my mind? Because sometimes it feels like Charlotte Mason homeschoolers feel like they have to do a Charlotte Mason curriculum that has all of the same books that Charlotte Mason read to her students. Mm -hmm. And so there's almost this limitation. Like there are a lot of beautiful newer books. Oh, there are definitely. It feels like a, it almost becomes this small framework when I believe that Charlotte Mason was giving us a, a living framework for choosing uh, literature. Yes, definitely. So, yeah, Charlotte Mason definitely had her, you know, her fingers on the pulse of the publishing world. She, a lot of publishers sent her books um, as they were being published or for review. And so she wasn't, she definitely wasn't stuck in using the same book. As a matter of fact, they didn't use the same books all of the time. So when I'm looking at a book today, though, I would still look at kind of the the same things. Is childish twaddle? Does it speak down to to a child? Is it dry? Is it based 
on a lot of ideas or is it only fact-based? And of course, as the child, as your student gets older, then they can, they can handle a lot more facts than when they're younger. But, but is it a book that's going to stimulate their interest? And I, I definitely give the kind of the, I had a librarian who had told me this secret and she said to give a book as many pages as years old you are. So before I kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater, I, I try to read at least that many pages. Or if my, my child is, you know, if I have a 14 year old, you know, if, if it hasn't grasped him within 14 pages, then I realize that that's not going to be a living presentation of those ideas for him. There are so many wonderful books out there, and there are definitely modern classics. I don't think that we have to stick with just one one book list at all. Oh, I love that. I think that's so helpful because, you know, if we have the freedom to go into the library and look for a stack of books that interest us, and then, you know, like you say, give give them a few pages in to see, is this a living book? Is this too heavy on dialogue? Is this kind of moralizing a certain point of view? Or is this of like the beautiful character, the beautiful life that Charlotte Mason wanted to communicate? Then I think we're going to have a lot more freedom and a lot more fun as homeschoolers than if we just say, oh, these are the books that she read. So this is the books that we need to read. Right, right, definitely. And, you know, um, for for my 16-year-old, I think that he, he really loves science. And so something that might not appeal to to others he for him it's a living language and so i i don't think that we can really place living books into one little box and and say that that's going to fit for everybody i'm excited to explore some more on these math ideas and these living book ideas and i'd love to know just some of the top 3 books that you or your family have read in the last year or so ooh good question so I suppose a classic would be Elizabeth Gaskell's Ruth, and that is a book that Charlotte Mason refers to in Volume 4, In Ourselves. I chose to read it for myself because I know that it touches on a lot of very difficult topics with teens, but not in a way that would injure their own innocence. So it deals with some of the heavier topics like um, maybe lust, but in a, in a very kind of innocent way. And okay, so, I'm excited to check that out. I'm a little bit, I'm a little, what am I? I'm like scraping the bottom of the barrel right now with fiction. So. Okay. <laughs> um, and I, I have to quickly maybe look up the one that my son just read, oh, Gudel Escher Bach, A Mental Space Odyssey. And that is, it's blowing my mind right now, but he's asked me to read it since he's enjoyed it so much. And it's kind of, it's a math fractals kind of logic book. And um, how fun. And I think that, you know, connecting with your, connecting with your teens over books is such a beautiful way to stay in relationship and keep cultivating that relationship as they grow into adulthood. Right. I, I had been reading a biography about Charlotte Mason, the story of Charlotte Mason. And one of the former students from her teacher training college had said that, uh, that they would bring all of their interests to her. And, and because she was so interested in what interested them, it made it doubly pleasurable for them. And so that stuck with me since my kids were little. And so, you know, I have two teenage boys. So a lot of things that interest them 
don't necessarily interest me, but I've already I've always tried to show an interest and really uh, come alongside if they want me to read something or they want to tell me about coding, perhaps, which I don't know a lot about, to find a kind of a, a common language with them in, in the areas that interest them as well. Yeah, well, I'm so excited that we got to hear from you today, Rochelle. I loved your thoughts on math. It really demystified Charlotte Mason math somewhat. And I'm so excited to look into the books that you recommended. So thank you for joining today. Thanks so much, Jen, for having me. Thanks, Rochelle. Friends, don't forget to check out the new fundraising campaign for the Wild and Free Farm Village and take a look at all the amazing giving perks that go along with it. Again, you can find out more information at bewildandfree.org slash farmvillage. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but join us again next week for the Wild and Free podcast.